Welcome to Sex Ed in the City with Drew and Dr. G. About health and sex education in today's modern classroom. Get an inside peek into the world of sex education and real life stories from teachers. Hosted by experienced educators Drew and Dr. G, each episode brings you an open and honest discussion about a range of topics related to health and sex education. Hey, 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 everyone. Welcome back to the next episode of Sex Ed in the City. We are so excited to have you all listening in again today. Hi, Drew. How are you? I'm very happy Dr. Ali is here, but also like coming down from the vacay blues. I was in Provincetown mm. for a bit. So very, very much feeling like the, I want to go back. <laughs> Big times. Yeah, hey. your pictures looked amazing. Ah, yes. So good. Oh yeah, it was it was a lot. We had some fun. Um, how are you? I'm okay. You know, I making big moves this week. Some big launches of my uh, back to school parents webinar series that I'm going to be hosting, and also getting ready because it's my birthday month. So in truly a fashion, you know, <laughs> I have to do all the things on every day. So that's been super exciting of like planning that. My best friend from childhood. We've been friends since I was like six. So for like four decades, she's coming to visit. Um, and then I'm going to make a trip to New York City in a couple of weeks. Oof. So. I'm okay, excited. lots going on. Yeah. Uh, you want to uh, introduce our guest? Yeah, I know. Today? I feel bad making them wait while we're just like, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> Dr. Ali is also a summer child as well. I want to say Gem or Cancer? Gemini. Yeah, got it. All right. Without further ado, let me introduce my friend. Uh, this is Dr. Ashna Ali. And Ashna Ali is a Best of the Net nominated queer, disabled, and diasporic Bangladeshi poet, writer, and editor raised in Italy and based in Brooklyn. They are the author of the chapter book, The, Relativi the Relativity of Living Well, uh, which came out in 2021, and poems featured or forthcoming from Asian American Writers Workshop, Brooklyn Poets, Split This Rock, Sundog Lit, Illinois Review, and elsewhere. They publish a substack called Pain Baby and are a 2023-2024 fellow in Shira Ehrlichman's online poetry program in Surreal Life. Ooh, welcome, Dr. Ali. Thanks for coming on yes. today. How are you? Having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, we're excited to have you. That was quite the, the biography. I'm so excited to hear about all these things. Question of the day. Santa. Eh, eh. All right. I kept, it, I kept it simple today. Um, pet peeves. What are they? What grinds your gears? And I can go first if you need thinking time. I would love a little thinking time. Yeah. <laughs> Think of what bothers me. All right. We have 10 minutes. It's a focus free, right? Get your pen out. Keep the pen. <laughs> Dr. Ali, uh, Dr. Gibson used to work at Bard as well. She was oh, there. No she was there before I was. So we all are very familiar with the Bard way. Got it. Got <laughs> it. Got it. Okay. I have three things. Oh, he came with three pet peeves. Okay. Maybe four. Okay. Uh, living in the East Village and walking to Bard every day, one of my biggest pet peeves is people who don't pick up their dog's poop. It's mm -hmm. gross. Mm-hmm. Um, second thing very much for us New Yorkers is the slow walkers sometimes, or people who are like blocking the aisle at the grocery store. I had that today. And my third was people who are obsessed with diet and exercise, which seems counterintuitive to us as health teachers, but drives me nuts. I don't want to talk about that all the time. I never want to talk about that. Fair enough. <laughs> Who's I mean, next? If we're allowing for like classic New York pet peeves, then I definitely have probably a longer list than you want to hear. Um, <laughs> I'm very, very upset and irritated by people who don't give up their subway seat to the elderly or the pregnant or the obviously disabled. Like that is really, just get up. It's not a big deal. It doesn't matter where you're going. You intend to get off sometime. Anyway, it, it just, it upsets me. Um, I am really, really annoyed by people who send me emails with my name misspelled in it. Mm. 
which happens very frequently, but my email address is literally my full name. So you can't actually misspell it and reach me at least <laughs> one time. Um, so that really, really bothers me. Um, and uh, really, really inconsistent texters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear that. Like I know. That's me. Apologies. Out on Friday. Do not take two days to get back to me. I have a life. <laughs> like it, it, there's a there's a real calendar brain in me where I'm like, yo, I asked you a question. <laughs> yeah, oh my God, I love it. Absolutely. Those are very New York things for sure. Yeah. <laughs> the responses. My problem is I read them. And then I get distracted and then I forget to respond. But now text, you can switch it to unread. So that's really been a lifesaver for me because I always forget to respond to people. Remember when I was in red receipts? I didn't even know, Drew. <laughs> Just being rude. Rachel oh, oh. unknowingly had her red receipts on <laughs> and didn't know it. So for years. Like, oh. I thought they were off. <laughs> Oh no. So I'm just ghosting people left and right, like really just living my best life. Oh well. I, I don't think I would be as like on with this stuff if I didn't kind of work in communications, number one. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I have my text inbox and my signal inbox and my WhatsApp inbox and my what do I have here? Like <laughs> Slack and mm-hmm. email. So like these are all open at all times and I just spend mm-hmm. most of my day sort of like whack a moling my way through them. <laughs> um, so it's, it's hard. Oh, yeah, that's such a New Yorker thing to do. <laughs> Why do we have all the things? Oh my gosh, so funny. Well, my pet peeves are all food related. So maybe that tells you something about me. Mm. My number one pet peeve is picky eaters. Like, I just like adult picky eaters. I went on this trip to China and these people were just, they couldn't eat anything. They were picky about the rice. I was like, this is the best rice you're ever going to have. What are you talking? It was like, so I can't with picky eaters. I'm like, just get it together. Um, and also like adults that can't use chopsticks or even like attempt to use the chopstick not because they can't or for any ability reason because they just never tried I'm like I don't I need you to expand your horizons beyond the fork and then adult cis straight men who cannot cook for themselves I don't understand how not even straight necessarily, just any cis man who doesn't know, like nourishing yourself is the basic life skill. I'm coming for you, Drew. I feel attacked. Yeah, you should. <laughs> I should, honestly. Yeah. Drag me. Wait, whoa, I can't. Drew Miller can't cook. Oh, gosh. No, Matt, basic abilities. It's very bad. Anyone. Yeah. So yeah. anyone has to be a gourmet I, I, chef. I to believe that. That doesn't make any sense for you. Uh, you'll have to... We'll bring Matt on at some point. Matt, to Rachel's other point, and not to steal your thunder, but Matt has a whole list in his phone's app of, like, the foods I don't eat and stuff. I'm bad. Yeah. I'm getting there. We're also figuring out what you need to deal with that in that you're blessed with someone who will do it for you. Yeah. Because, listen, I'll be like, no, that is, like, a non-negotiable for me in dating the you person has to like you. it's great uh, that's wonderful <laughs> regardless time yeah. to start making some things <laughs> <laughs> i do make things but they're like very basic we don't have to talk about this so like it's just like oh a grilled cheese or like eggs for breakfast <laughs> entire podcast coming for drew <laughs> yeah i'm here for it come for the white my 10 year old nephew can cook okay uh. he's been experimenting <laughs> in the kitchen with different types of breakfast sandwiches and meals he learned how to my sister made a bunch of ham my sister's a vegetarian but he's not so she made a bunch of like hamburger patties for him and froze them so whenever he wanted to make like a hamburger creation he could do it he's like mm. in the kitchen now he's 10 it's amazing my sister's like i will not raise a man that cannot nourish himself <laughs> I'm like, there it is. There it is. Absolutely. 
this 10 year old's also bilingual. Like he's, he's way ahead of a lot of 10 year olds. I'm yeah. He's a dope kid. He really is. <laughs> okay. Um, first of all, Ashna, do you prefer, I noticed on your bio, you didn't say Dr. Ali. Do you prefer Ashna? Do you prefer Dr. Ali? I mean, if you call me Dr. Ali, that's just weird. <laughs> so <laughs> let's go with Ashna. Okay, um, okay. I think uh, the only time I've ever been referred to as Dr. Ali was while I was teaching at Bard. Mm-hmm. That is the only small little chapter of my life in which I was referred to in that way. So I kind of forget <laughs> that it's a thing. Got it. Okay, noted. Ashna, it is. Hey, good to know. Yeah, talk to us or talk to everyone, I guess, a little bit about, well, we met at Bard together. We're, we're in different departments, but we like interacted and like overlapped. And I think that's just kind of, you feel the energy from people. And even mm-hmm. though I was never in your class, like, I knew you were like a great person and the kids love you and trusted you so much. Um, You've since, you've since left Bard. Can you kind of, what's, what's going on now? What are you doing now? Oh man. Um, This is also going to sound super stereotypically New York, right? In that I'm sort of like job juggling my way uh, through the world in order to sustain an artistic career. So As an artist, I'm a poet, which um, notoriously does not pay anything ever in most contexts. Um, So in order to support that, I am doing a number of different things. I work as the sort of manager and handler for Chelsea Manning and support her in running operations for her sort of intellectual property tech startup company. Um, Additionally, I have my own one person company that provides uh, editorial support, whether it's development, editing, conceptualizing, straight up coaching from the ground up uh, for people writing books. Mm. I translate, I work as a sensitivity reader from time to time on a freelance basis for Penguin Random House. And I just joined the team at Anjali Education Consultants and they are a group of really cool uh, writers and editors and educators who support individual high school students on the development of their college essays um as they apply for colleges wow so many things <laughs> so you're many things. so dope oh my god whack-a-mole whack-a-mole i love it <laughs> no that is really cool yeah when you were at bard were you also i mean you were still writing and doing your own thing as well have you like like how has that transition be been like uh, since leaving the classroom Lots of different hats. Lots of different hats. While I was at Bard, I was still writing and performing poetry, but definitely with less frequency, just because that job um, takes up so much uh, time and space and mental energy that Mm -hmm. sustaining anything else with that much attention would have been, I think, too great a challenge for me. Um, I left Bard in 2021. Yeah, I think so. Time since 2020 has collapsed for me as a concept. I like, I never know what, where, when anything is anymore. Um, But when I left, I was very, very, very ill. So the transition out was really hard because I wanted to be there and I couldn't because I was just not well enough to handle it. And um, it's been really gratifying to have the flexibility and autonomy and freedom to do all of these things that I'm currently doing but I do miss the kids kind of every day I really miss the classroom I do not miss the things that come with you know working for an academic institution on the level of office politics and bureaucracy and all of that nonsense but I really 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 miss the classroom all the time I feel that 
Yeah, no one, I feel like no one ever leaves teaching is like, I don't miss the kids. Everyone's like, I miss the kids. Nothing else. Yeah. And I wish we could get to a place where teaching is really just that teaching or doing the passionate things and not bogged down by all the stuff that makes folks leave the profession because so many folks leave that for reasons that have nothing to do with young people and education and everything to do with the systems it's a real shame it's a real shame to watch so many people with so much talent and love sour on it so deeply Mm -hmm. which I was absolutely a part of I do not think I'm ever going back both for health reasons and because once you're out of the game for a little while they don't invite you back um mm-hmm. and it's that sucks too i think mm-hmm. um i still create opportunities to teach adults usually writers and poets and and do online workshops centered around queerness or disability or representations of something in particular be it you know queer sex or south asian femininity you know a variety of different things and that's cool and it is its own pleasure but there's something about teenagers <laughs> it's not the same it's not the same teaching adults it's not teenagers are just have a magical quality to them uh, you know before i started teaching at bard i don't think i'd interacted with a person under like 19 since I was 19 (laughs) and I went in terrified I'd only taught undergraduate and I loved that but I came in sort of like oh my god I don't what am I gonna do with this kid this is gonna suck and then within a week I was like oh (laughs) y'all are wonderful (laughs) it was a surprise well, especially the kids at Bard. Bard kids are a whole different. Yeah. They just have a different quality I found in my teaching than than other young people. Not better or worse, but it's a very different vibe. And at Bard allows for specific types of teaching and cultivating like special relationships that are different than some other schools out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It almost makes me miss them right now. <laughs> I sent out a cross country email today. I was like, we got a month till it's sport time, kids. Hope you're moving. I got no responses. So like, all they've all been on their phones all summer. <laughs> You're probably like, eh, I'm on vacation. They're so funny. I'm eating nachos. <laughs> I was just eating chips too. So no judgment, kids. We love that. Oh my God. Um, Ashna, so I feel like I'm just like grilling you. I hope this is okay. Um, I listened. To, yeah, I listened to your. Well, like I subscribed to your Substack. You and Rachel both have Substacks, which are amazing. Pain baby. Um, I listened to your podcast with Rachel Krantz. Is that? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that. I mean, and maybe just because like I, we had never like sat down and talked about all those things and but like learned so much about you and a little bit of your journey from that. <laughs> Sorry. I bet there were, there were quite a few things on there where I was like, hmm, things I wouldn't talk about if I were still a public school teacher. <laughs> you got to my next point is like, you are a queer person. Like, I think a lot of times we talk about like, um, like I guess the term is self-disclosure. Mm-hmm. Like parts of yourself that you're willing to share, you feel safe to share. Um, can you talk about that at all? What that's like for you, how you decide if and when you want to share. You mean with students? Yes. Or just okay. with faculty either. Um, faculty, for the most part, are not in my experience, wildly interested to know much of anything that isn't relevant to getting something done today. So I've never really worried about that as such. It's only really been people, colleagues with whom I have a real relationship and friendship who sort of eventually get curious about things because they're getting to know me as a human being. With the students, you know, normally I will 
self-disclose when I feel that the it the place that I'm coming from when I'm speaking is very specific to my experience. And when I say normally, I mean when I teach undergraduates, which is still the large majority of my teaching career. Mm-hmm. When I got to Bard, my approach towards self-disclosure changed a great deal because I realized when I came in to interview just how many students are Bangladeshi girls and queer kids running around. And I also noticed that the faculty had a lot of people on it that identified as gay, but not necessarily as queer. And I realized that if I got up in front of these kids, especially as a brown femme who is queer and treated those things about myself like they were something unprofessional that should not be visible, then I'm teaching them something that I don't want them to espouse. Mm-hmm. So I, I identified in a very sort of public, casual way without it ever being like a coming out, you know? Um, I think I put my pronouns on the syllabus, which already tells you a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I look the way I do. So obviously at least the South Asian kids were curious about where exactly from the subcontinent I came from, but they knew before I got there because somehow students know everything before you get there. <laughs> uh So I was very open with them about things that have to do with identity and what that means politically, but I never, ever disclosed whether I was in a relationship with whom, what those relationship styles were and why never disclosed how I spend my time outside of the building, except when I'm talking about reading or poetry. Like I was interested in how my identities could function as a teaching tool, not interested in sharing actual stories about my personal life with the students. Mm. Mm -hmm. Got it. In part because I don't need parents getting me fired. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, yeah. Oh, there she is. Yes. Wait, what's the cat's name again? I forgot. Oh, wait, is it Kubo? Avatar. Wriggly and a bit of a menace at the moment. <laughs> Put me down. A Peter I <laughs> have never seen an in-person hairless cat. I'm you so intrigued. He loves company and friends and new people to pet him and spoil <laughs> him. Like Folks, if you're only listening to the podcast, <laughs> I really encourage you to go to the video to see the cat, even if it's just for that five seconds, because it's an amazing cat. You so bet. if you're only listening, tune in, tune in. The real creature. That's <laughs> sure. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Beautiful. Oh my God. I miss having a dog. I would love, I would like to have some sort of animal. I've never lived with a cat, but some sort of affection would be great. Maybe a ferret. How do we feel about ferrets? No, they will destroy everything you own. <laughs> And they're too close. Aren't they rodents? They're I think they're illegal in New York to, to be rats. Ugh, what's wrong with the rat? Are they illegal? I mean, they they probably are. They probably <laughs> but I've met many a New York ferret in people's homes. It's I just don't they're, think it's a good idea. <laughs> they're an interesting animal though, because they can like flatten themselves. Mm-hmm. It's very like it's an odd experience to see an animal just like completely <laughs> flat. And I find people with ferrets always have many. Yeah. It gets definitely. a little like, I don't know. <laughs> it gets a little, I don't know. <laughs> Try not to judge, but also. If you don't have five, don't what are you doing? <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. Gross. Well, uh, I don't do rodents. Um, But back to your conversation about your identity, I think one of the things I struggled with as a teacher the most was this balance of like my like myself as Rachel and then myself as the teacher, Miss Gibson. Mm -hmm. And and that seemed like so similar to what you were saying is like when 
do you bring in these personal parts of your life as a teaching tool and what do you keep private? And then especially like in New York City or in places where you go outside and then you see your students. Um, that was always such a struggle for me throughout my career. And it's bled over into my career, like post being in the classroom as well. This kind of like, I don't know when I, you know, what do I do? So I, I think that's interesting for all teachers. Um, but especially if you have identities that are, that people could have a problem with, <laughs> you know, especially the teacher uh, with the parents, you never know exactly what's going on. I feel like the kids don't know what to do with it either. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so it's been almost three years since I've been in the classroom and two of my former students showed up to a poetry reading that I did last week. And I was overjoyed, obviously, but they walked in like they were sneaking into something like really sheepish. And then they were like, we didn't know if you'd recognize us. And it's like, I remember you, your parents in your last three essays. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they were just sort of like, Hi, in this way, I'm like, I know so much about you. We've had so many conversations about so many things, but because we're not in that space, mm -hmm. there is no protocol. They don't know how to, you know, everyone's just sort of like, uh, and even now, three years later, they are in college somewhere else. And they're like, Dr. Ash, is that really okay? <laughs> it's like, yes, I'm just a person now. <laughs> um, I think uh, there's a lot of code switching that we become adept at. And it doesn't mm -hmm. mean that it's always comfortable, but yeah, it is. Yeah, I never, that's a good point. We talked about, we've talked about our discomfort, but then the students are as well. They, they don't know what to do either. <laughs> How it's do I? It's so funny. Too? Yeah. It's so sheepish. It's just like, um, a few of my former students live in my neighborhood and they'll huh. like see me at the Walgreens and be like, hi, I don't know. They like, either they act like they've caught me doing something or that they've been caught out somewhere. Like we shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny I find that students are either like the sheepest I don't know what to tell yeah. you I'm an adult I have a face I clean it like it's <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I feel like students in my past have either been very sheepish mm -hmm. or like all in my business I, I I run into like students like on dates and like when I've been drinking or whatever. And then the next Monday, everyone knows, everyone's asking me questions, just all in the business. I'm like, can mm. you please mind yours? I will be here living my life. I was very surprised to find so little of that, actually. Because mm. I know that they did it with colleagues of mine. Like I know and saw students be like, so do you have a boyfriend? Like, are you, are you married? Is he cute? Is he ever going to come to school? And But like, I never, ever, ever got any of that. And I wonder if that was fear or like, I, I've never, I have no idea what it was about what I was doing with them that stopped the question before it came out. Cause I'm mm. sure they had it, but uh, it never happened. I've never, ever had any of the Bard kids ask me a personal question. Really? That's Interesting. Like a like a personal, personal question. Yeah, I feel like you taught, what, uh, seminar and probably some electives, correct? Or what grades were you teaching? So I, throughout the time uh, there, I t always taught 10th grade English. So I always had like three or four sections of 10th grade English. Um, and I taught... For three semesters, I taught seminar, um, the the sort of early part, the classics, which I was not a fan of, but I had a great time. Um, and I taught a handful of electives. So I taught, um, wow, what were they called? 
uh, Desi diasporic literature and pop culture was one of them to cater to all of the South Asian kids who really felt underrepresented in the curriculum. And I was like, fine, I'll make you a class that does nothing else. Um, and they, that was amazing. That was really transformative for me. And uh, I taught a class that was intersectional feminisms. Intro to intersectional feminisms. There apparently had never been a class on feminist literature or theory in the curriculum, mm. which mm. was stunning to me. Um, and that was incredibly fun to teach. Yeah, I stunning yet not the same yeah. time. <laughs> it's just it, it's such a. I don't know. It's just, it's a school community that where it would seem super obvious that a lot of the mm -hmm. ideas that the kids seem already relatively well-versed in came from classes that they took. And it turned out not to be the case. Yeah. So like A plus out the gate that they are informing themselves in the ways that they do, but also you should have someone helping you understand the history of these ideas and what they look like in longer forms than they get on TikTok or Instagram. You mean TikTok is not the 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 best way or the only way? What? what? Love TikTok. Yeah, e or the classes you taught, I'm sure, and just like the nature of them, like probably really allowed you connect really well with students. I think like health and sex ed, we get a lot of personal talks and stuff, but I can't imagine like I don't know the stuff you're reading and tying it back to like things going on in their life or just them writing constantly because that's all Bard Kids does and maybe seeing their mm. thoughts. I'm not, I don't know how much you saw and didn't see, but like, I feel like that's, I feel like English teachers, I don't know if that's even how you would describe yourself, uh, just have such a great relationship with kids because they see so much into their inner thoughts. Yeah, it can vary. Um, it's not, you know, when you're teaching something like 10th grade literature, sometimes it's very rote for them you know it's like how how personal can a 15 year old get about Gilgamesh depends on the kid um there's no way to not have strong feelings about some of the pieces that you get to teach in electives that deal with these issues so kind of whoever you are you need to have a take um so it's a it's a built-in sort of privilege where you're not going to not provoke students who are interested in thinking teaching those things um but it also got to be thick I mean it was a lot of stories and a lot of feelings and a lot of questions particularly the intersectional feminisms class and the Desi diasporic class there were just a lot of very strong feelings kids coming out for the first time in the class questions about like well you know how do I this this was something I taught as many texts as I could find on because it was relevant to so many of the kids but like how do I reconcile my relationship with my god and my religion and my family with my queerness or with my queer friends or with my queer desires or you know what have you and that was that was always like a really strong current throughout everything. Yeah, that's beautiful. When you create that classroom atmosphere where they feel cared for and I'd imagine see themselves in what you're teaching and what you're talking about. Kids will do that. They'll they'll tell you things that will come out. That's that's beautiful. I mean that's how I knew to connect with you because that's how they always talked about you. Mm. You know, the kids were always talking about how much fun you are, how open you are. And like, I would walk into your, I think there was a, there was a semester where you ended a class and I started it in the same classroom. Mm -hmm. It was always such, such a little family in there. It was very cute always. And I was like, that doesn't happen unless the adult at the front of the room is fostering that environment. It was beautiful. Yeah. They're very lucky to have you. That's so, that's sweet. Thank you very much. 
yeah, we feel lucky to have them too. Like, I don't know. I was, I was just traveling all weekend. Of course you have like 50 conversations with just strangers. You're never going to see again. And it's like, but what do you do? You're a teacher. Or do you love, I'm like, I do like, I love those little monsters, even though they drive me <laughs> up the wall throughout the year and we're so burnt out. But like, we learn so much of ourselves yeah. from them. I feel like I've learned so much. They come in and talk about ideas that like I had never heard of. And then I'm like literally shifting my curriculum because they're teaching me. It's pretty wild. They're so much smarter than I could have imagined being at that age. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. <laughs> As sometimes I'm like, ooh, you get it together. <laughs> it really embarrassed me. I remember having, mm. you know, long, serious conversations with these 10th graders and then being like, what was I doing at 15? Definitely not this. Definitely not. I do nothing at all. Nothing. Oh. Oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah, impressive. I miss them. Hopefully, there will be some opportunity in the future where I get to do that again in some way. I wish young people, especially New York City kids, had more opportunity to experience an education like the education at Bard, despite whatever issues there might be. Um, because I think so many young people would have different feelings about school and different successes and achievements at school if they were given the opportunity to have that kind of education. So much education is just like not that <laughs> a bard, right? It's so like memorized, don't talk unless you're spoken, like rah, that of course they're not enjoying it. Um and yeah, the Bard kids definitely come in, you know, they've been doing the work. They come in, you know, seasoned with the things and they have a lot of academic skill, but they're still 15 year olds, you know, and even at other schools I've worked at, they might not have had the like, quote unquote, academic skills and the language, but they could still think and they still have those same ideas. And I wish they had been giving opportunities to have classes like that too to learn those skills and practice those skills and to have this engagement um, and to really like self-reflect and interrogate ideas that often they just don't get. It's like, do this busy work so you Uh can get this, do this exam. And it's like not education. And I'm like, well, maybe if we (laughs) made it interesting and they actually got to talk, (laughs) you know, it's, it's a shame that not all, just goes to show the inequalities of and inequities of public schools in general not only in new york but around the nation Mm -hmm. ashna you grew up in i don't i can't remember your timeline your bio said you grew up in italy but now Mm -hmm. reside in brooklyn how long were you in both places you spend most of your go ahead wild fact i was in Rome from zero to 18. So I was there for 18 years. And as of this month, I will have been in Brooklyn for 18 years. Wow. Wait, so how many languages do you speak? Or well. <laughs> nice. Amazing. Nice. And two so. Okay, nice. What was it like growing up in Italy? Like how, I mean, we've talked a lot about, we're talking to like international educators as well. And like the differences, how was your experience in Italy, in Rome? Well, I was a young person in Italy in the nineties and early two thousands. So we've got Berlusconi a still very uh, hostile cultural European approach toward immigrants, particularly immigrants of color, the large majority of which in Rome are people working service industry jobs or are otherwise working class. There's, uh, so that like that landscape really changes the experience, I think that people maybe assume I might have had because mm. Italy, I mean, it, it, ha- it has a fancy sheen on it because 
Americans really romanticize Europe, um, which I don't think is is neither here nor there. But uh, I was I think it was a really interesting and different education in how race and gender work in space than I would have had if I were in the U.S. or and certainly in Bangladesh. Um, so I think it was both a really, really beautiful experience because Rome is absolutely one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Stunning, stunning, stunning. It had such a deep, deep impact on my relationship to art and food and architecture and just like all of these things are sort of overlapping because it's a about a particular kind of approach to form and beauty it definitely gave me a pretty serious chip on my shoulder about things like race and gender mm. um it gave me wild exposure to so much language because while we talk about diversity and how international new york is for the most part everybody here speaks to each other in english which is just not true in particularly in much smaller cities that are perhaps not as cosmopolitan, but have lots of people moving in and out all the time. Um, it was a wild time. I really, yeah, I don't even know where, where to begin. I'm both deeply grateful for my experiences there and wish I'd been spared some of the uglier things that came with the territory. Mm. yeah it's interesting to hear you talk about the race and gender piece because i would as assume a lot of and this is probably my american view like romanticizing italy but just like i would Im i think of the united states as doing some pretty bad or like unsensitive things like educationally typically mm -hmm. um I guess I, I wasn't expecting Italy or at least Rome where you grew up to have that as well. I never had a sex ed class. I never had a health class. Um, and I went to an elite international private Catholic mm. prep school. It was a nightmare. Um, my educators were incredible and I continue to be close with several of them, all of whom have finally retired and brought back peace into their lives. But, uh, you know, it, it, was a, it was a tough environment for a young person, for sure. I mean, it was for me um, with my peers. My teachers were extraordinary and I owe them honestly everything. They were the reason I became a teacher. Mm. they absolutely saved my life and continue to be some of the greatest influences in my life um but when I talk about the the gender and race piece I think it's what's happening in education public and private in Rome is necessarily reflected in the culture and back right and the culture is super, super, super patriarchal. And the pressure on women is so high. When I got to the US, I was 18 and really viscerally felt how much more latitude I had in that I could wear comfortable shoes. Mm. and not be seen as poorly dressed or underdressed in that there were people who went to work adults who went to work without wearing makeup in that you know women just were comfortable literally and I realized I was not used to seeing that in public space mm. Imagine an interesting insight. I mean, I'm 
pretty femme presenting. I'm quite small. Um, I think that for the US, I am quite femme presenting in a variety of different ways. And I go home and I like pop out to the grocery store or something and I feel like the biggest, most visible like butch dyke in the world. Wow. You know, with my mother close behind me, like put on lipstick at least, you know, like it's, <laughs> it's, it's real. Expectations for women are, are just to be like extremely feminine. Is it also with like gender norms and things like that as well? Absolutely. Um, I mean, there is a strong feminist movement that has grown out of and and persists through a super, super strong political left intellectual arm in Italy. And it's an incredible tradition, but it uh, has not had sufficient impact on the day-to-day -day lives of women in Italy, I don't think. Um, and to this day, you know, it's it's a lot about a, appearance and behavior, how you sit. There's a lot of policing of, of physical behavior and appearance uh, of women. I mean, there were, I don't know if this has changed because I haven't been home in a minute, but it, it, it also is a country that uses the bodies of women to advertise pretty much anything at any time. I mean, yogurt, cars. I mean, there's just always breasts. There's always breasts everywhere. <laughs> and there's always advertisements for plastic surgery, cellulite removal, weight loss, like all the time, everywhere. It's incredibly ubiquitous. So it just kind of seeps into you, right? That like you always have to be a certain kind of thing that's more important than achievement or peace or comfort or intellectual stimulation or creativity. Like, I don't know. I, I always felt very immediately aware of the pressure to be a particular shape, size, there was a, a way you had to be, to be acceptable. Sounds exhausting and really traumatic. Yeah. It really was super traumatic in a way that I don't think I even fully recognized until I made my way into my like mid twenties. And I was like, wow, I'm like really screwed up about a lot of things. Um, and I was super grateful for the intellectual traditions that really helped me kind of decolonize um, my emotional life. Because intellectually, you can do all of the work that you want to be like, all bodies are acceptable. There's no such thing, you know, and it doesn't change the the moment when you're sitting in front of a plate having disorderly thoughts or the moment when you mm -hmm. compare yourself to another person and find yourself lacking like i i don't know i always find that my gut is 10 years behind my brain mm -hmm. oh drew no you're I, I love this part of the podcast. I love getting into it. I, I almost feel like bad asking these questions and feel like it's like people recounting their trauma. And like, I think I feel a little guilt about that. <laughs> oh, I have made it absolutely my life's work in my poetry, in my teaching, in my essay writing, in my memoir stuff to, to be super public about this because I think it's significantly yeah. more common than mm -hmm. not. Yeah. Yeah, and we I definitely want to give you space as well. You I read your book uh of poems. Thank you. Um we'll post a link in there so people can buy it. But one of the parts, or like a lot of your your poetry was writing about um like chronic illness and disability and and things like that. So I definitely want to give you space to like talk about that because that's I mean, you had the whole podcast on it. I learned so much. Um, but I guess I'm just thinking kind of like 
maybe for anybody who's listening or like other teachers out there who like, uh, what am I trying to say? How can we be more inclusive or what can teachers, educators do better for students living with chronic illness? And I know it's very like person to person. Um, what do you think it about that? It isn't. Um, figuring out how to incorporate disability justice principles in the policies that organized my classroom and lesson plans was one of the things that I was really focused on in my last two years there. And there are ways to do it. I'm sure I just scratched the surface of what's possible because I was just sort of like doing it alone. Um, but I was interested in figuring out models for grading that took neurodivergence into account and a lot of other challenges into account so that I was grading progress instead of product. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, so progress, not product was something that I was like constantly thinking about in terms of how assessment works, because one of the most violent things when it comes to disability justice is the notion of assessment to begin with, right? Like you are good and you are bad and you did badly or you did well. And it's like, or there's a whole story with your relationship to whatever it is that you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I failed statistics twice in a row. It was because the class was oriented around data that focused on teen suicide in response to antidepressants. Not because I'm bad at statistics. I found that too traumatic. I couldn't get close to it, let alone do numbers. Yeah. So you never know what's going on. Um, so I think that's uh, an important thing that I sort of used experiences with students to retool grading rubrics. Mm. Uh, I was constantly retooling grading rubrics to target assessment as uh, the the primary ill um, to, mm -hmm. to comb out. But I think the thing that I would say the most to educators who want to make their classes more accessible is to read disability justice books that are specific to that idea, but also talk to students who are clearly ill. What would make your life easier? Mm -hmm. And assume that if it's true for them, it's probably true for a bunch of other st students. I you know, love that. We can't do. We can't make the doors better for the kid in the wheelchair. We can't necessarily make, you know, a lot of it is, is structural, but mm -hmm. a lot of it isn't. Yeah, that was one thing I took away from your pod was like, I think people, specifically Americans, like don't want to ask the questions because they feel like they're being rude or they're intruding. And you really mentioned like, if you're asking in a way that's like genuinely curious and like you have a caring for this person, it's like, hey, I don't understand what blah, blah, blah is. Like, could you help me understand that? Uh, yeah, that could go a huge way in building a relationship with the student, also just being able to help them um, succeed better. More. Yeah, and there, there, are two, there are two different schools of thought on this. And mm. I, I run into this argument a lot. I am of the personal approach if someone is ever like hey I want to learn more about this thing that is true about you whether it's illnesses or where I'm from or queer identity or whatever I've also heard often from uh trans folks and I completely understand especially in this environment why this would be the approach it's like no you cannot ask me questions about this go look it up mm. And I appreciate that because the questions tend to be very personal and of a kind that you would never ask someone otherwise, right? Yeah. Like I did have a, a moment in my professional history, I won't name places or names, where someone at one point was like, so your pronouns are they, them? And I was like, yes. 
And, you know, they were like, so what does that mean for like, and I realized they were asking me about the status of my genitalia. Mm. And I was like, "Mm, how's your genitalia? And it was just so (laughs) shocking to this person to be asked that question. And I was like, hey, you see how that feels? Um, But people Mm. feel entitled if you're different to make you fit into whatever idea of the world that they have. So I completely get it when people are like, no, go away. You can do your own research. But I think that there is something different about the genuine ask and you can tell. Yeah, there's a difference in saying like, how can I support you in this class? Then what parts do you have? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, what parts, what genitals we have make no difference to how I can learn anything, anything, anything at all. So, yeah, I think it's the question folks are actually asking is so important. And also, it's not your business. Students have come to me and said, you know, so and so won't use my pronouns because they are making explicitly in the classroom in front of other students uh, a sort of quote unquote logical equivalence between their assumptions about my body and the language that should be used to refer to me. Right. So, There is also that additional thing of like being super careful about how you're asking the questions. There's what are your pronouns versus what do you feel like? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it's, it's, you know, I think, and just such a small change, right? In in our language um, is so important. You know, when we we work, you know, Drew and I have done a lot of like workshops with teachers and just like changing one small word in Mm -hmm. your language, in your question makes all the difference in the world. And I find that educators who care will learn and do the work. And there's the ones where they won't even try. And you're like, okay, well, why are you actually here in this classroom? Do you like young people? Do you like people? And if so, how, you know, what are you doing to include all the young people in your class? There are a lot of people who really love young people, but get stuck in their ways as they Mm -hmm. do over and over again and Mm -hmm. forget that it's not good enough to just like feel love for them. Yeah. (laughs) You have to like feel it and like show it (laughs) and be it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned, um, I forgot to write these down and I don't want to put you on the spot either because uh, it's like, oh yeah, recite these books off the top of your head. Do you, you mentioned some in your old, in the podcast with Rachel or maybe I can direct, just direct people towards that, but some good books about, um, that were related to like chronic illness and disability justice. So first I'm going to take this opportunity to plug Rachel. Um, Rachel Krantz is a beautiful writer, uh, does a tremendous amount of like interesting feminist writing on queerness, relationships, sex toys, weed, veganism, Hmm. the gamut, and wrote this incredible memoir called Open, which I think I have a copy of, which would be accessible, I do, this is Open. Yes, an uncensored memoir of love, liberation, and non-monogamy. And there is a character in this book whose name is changed and whose uh, biography is slightly tweaked, who is me. Um, And the reason that was true was because I was a thousand percent sure that this would end up in some parents' beach reading And then they would know things about how I live my life that no parent of a child I teach needs to know. Um, I no longer do that, uh, obscure my name, but uh, it's, it's a great book. I strongly recommend it. Rachel has done a couple of different podcasts. 
I've been on a couple of different of her podcasts and the episode that Drew is referring to was one in which Rachel and I had a conversation about disability and invisible disability in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, So Drew, you asked me for recommendations for things people should read. Um, Care work, I think is very accessible and warm and interesting. And that's by um, Leah Piepna Samara Sinha, Piepsna Samara Sinha. It is not an easy name to say. Um, I really like the anthology Disability Visibility, who uh, it's, I believe both of them are going to be, well, there is a Disability Visibility One, which is already published, and the texts in it are curated by Alice Wong, who we see as like one of the great mothers of disability justice. She's absolutely incredible. Um, And there's a second anthology coming out, I think this or next year, I'm in it. as are a lot of really, really extraordinary uh, writers, many of whom I know, that is actually one of the things that I love the most about the disability community. We stick together um, and uplift one another's work. And I, I am super, super grateful for, for the community. Uh, it's, I've never been in a warmer environment socially, I have to say. Um, who else should I recommend? Mia Mingus. Mia Mingus has an incredible blog, the name of which I forget, but it's really, really good. And Mia Mingus is a woman of color, a disabled person and queer and has this super intellectual um, intersectional lens when writing about really anything and um, brings all three of those frameworks to everything that she does in a really interesting way that we need to see more of in the world. So many. I have so many things. I want to like get up and look. Um, <laughs> Don't get up. <laughs> I'm happy to like curate a top 10 for your podcast website or something if you like. God. That would be amazing. Oh my God. I wrote down all the ones you just gave us, which are, which sound fantastic. So appreciative. Um, oh yeah. I like have a syllabus. We'll just cut and paste it to you. Perfect. Oh my we gosh, appreciate that's awesome. That. Yeah. We so appreciate that. Yeah, Ashna, this was this combo was amazing. I was so happy that we made this work and that we got to speak with you. Yeah. Tell the people how to find you. Tell us what you're excited about or what you like all the things. Where to find you? Um I, okay, so shameless self-promotion, what are the best ways? Uh, Instagram has, I think, most of the information in all of the directions. Got it. Um, my handle on Instagram is Dr. Dushtu, that's D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-S-H-T-U, doctor the whole word, the whole word to remind me that I have a doctorate, even though I feel like I don't use it particularly mm-hmm. and the word dushtu which in bengali means mischievous or naughty yes <laughs> i, I never it. knew that i never knew that um, oh that's so cool activity of living well um is no longer available for order online because it is being expanded and reissued and should come out as a whole other animal um sometime in the next year i'm thinking um, I have a bunch of poetry online that can just be Googled easily. Um, I do a bunch of readings and I publish a monthly or more than monthly substack at painbaby.substack.com. Awesome. Wow. You are brilliant. I am like a little bit like fangirling <laughs> right now. <laughs> Friends. Yay. That's my hairless cat. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm going to be in Brooklyn in a couple weeks. Where I would love you? to meet up for coffee or something. Where um, are you located? Um, I'm going to be in like Crown Heights. Where 
Is, no, where are, are you, you now? Right now I'm in Miami. Oh. We got a lot of issues down here in Florida, but I lived in New York uh, for 20 years. Okay. I've been very homesick as of late. So I'm going to, I'm coming to Brooklyn um, in a couple of weeks. So I would love to have coffee and chat more. Absolutely. Um, I wonder if this will um, maybe inspire Drew to hang out with me in person. I'm not going to be here. <laughs> he's going to be in Australia because he's fancy. I'm going to Australia to see my old roommate. Uh, I was just in Provincetown. And my <laughs> right? uh, I summer in Australia. And also, oh. I'm just running off to Australia to go be beautiful <laughs> over there. You know, whatever. I need you both y'all to can, do that. Y'all can do your coffee thing. I, just... <laughs> I have FOMO already. Stop it. <laughs> you have FOMO. I want to go to Australia. <laughs> I know. Please right? come. Please come. Oh my God. Oh my Jen gosh. would love you both. Um, but yes, I would love to get coffee with you when you are here. That's awesome. Uh, John Heights mm-hmm. is a neighborhood I am in with great frequency. Okay. Happy to see you. Okay, cool. I will send you an email about that. Um, yeah. I feel things brewing. <laughs> I'm so excited. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Yeah. We appreciate you. Thanks for coming on and spending some time with us, just like chatting it up. Hey, everybody. If you have questions for us or I don't know, you can follow us on at Sex in the City on Instagram and Twitter. And our email is Drew and Dr. G at gmail.com. Any questions, thoughts? We appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Yeah, well, and we'll put all Ashna's information in the description mm-hmm. so you can check that out to make sure to get a hold of them. All right, y'all. See you next time. Follow us on Spotify, podcasts on Apple, or our YouTube channel, Sex Ed in the City. Stay connected. We hope to see you soon.